You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, York Region. For more information, visit hbcyr.ca. Well, church, please grab your Bible with me and turn to Colossians chapter 2. Today we're going to consider verse 16 to verse 19. I'm not sure about you, but sometimes I've found that it can be hard to say no. If you're a parent, it can be hard to say no to your kids. They might ask, can I stay up an extra hour and watch the game? It's like, mm. Especially when it starts at 9 o'clock starting next week. Or you might be uh, at work and someone asks, can you pick up a shift for me? And it's like, I don't know. Or your boss asks you, hey, I need you to just, can you stay late an extra hour? It's like, I don't know. I don't, for me, sometimes really hard to say no. But I remember hearing once upon a time that sometimes uh, no is your best yes. Because by saying no to some things, there are the right and good things that you can say yes to. It's hard to say no, though. In the book of Colossians, we've been learning about the supremacy of Christ over all things and the sufficiency of Christ in all things to strive and reach full maturity in our walk with Christ. In Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul taught about the theological significance of the supremacy of Christ. And in chapter 2, Paul started correcting the false teaching that was minimizing Christ's supremacy and uh, diluting his sufficiency. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 1 to 7, Paul said his desire for them was that they would be presented mature in Christ, that they would walk in Christ as they received him. Uh, In Colossians 2, verse 8 to 10, the apostle Paul identifies the specific marks and traits of the false teaching that was uh, invading into their church. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 to 15, what we saw last week is that uh, Paul's specified that their identity was in Christ, that they didn't need to listen to this false teaching because the knowledge of their identity in Christ was enough for them to reach full maturity. And this week, in Colossians 2, verse 16 to 19, Paul commands the Colossian church, having understood what the false teaching is, to now defiantly say no to those false teachers. Look at the text beginning of verse 16. It says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. Then verse 18, let no one disqualify you. These aren't suggestions. These are commands. No, I will not let you pass judgment on me. No, I will not let you disqualify me. And this is the same thing that we need to understand as well. Having taken the past few weeks to understand what this false teaching is, now we need to learn to have the courage to be able to defy it. This is the idea of the message today. We can defy false teaching. We must defy false teaching because we know our fullness is in Christ. We can defy false teaching because we know our fullness is in Christ. Colossians 2, verse 16 to 19, describes the two qualities of false teaching that we must defiantly stand against. So as we do, would you stand with me to honor God as we read his word together? Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 to 19. This is God's word. It speaks to us today, and this is what it says. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. 
These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels and going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Father in heaven, let our church here, let our congregation, this body grow with a growth that's from you, Lord God. Father, would we experience true spiritual growth that bears fruit as we abide in you, that glorifies your life through our life, bearing fruit in righteousness and in holiness and in sanctification, bearing fruit in prayer and in evangelism, bearing fruit in compassion and in mercy and in hospitality, bearing fruit in such a way that our conduct in word and in deed exalts Christ amongst others and is pleasing to you in heaven. And thank you that we can grow in this way, Lord. Thank you that we can grow in this way because we have your sufficiency through the gospel. So ask for, we ask for your help today, Lord. Help us to again understand and discern the nature of false teaching and then to have the courage to defy it. Help us, meager men and women, please, in Jesus' name, amen. We must defy false teaching because our fullness is in Christ alone. Two qualities of false teaching that we need to defiantly stand against. The first one is this. We must defy judgmental legalism. We must defy judgmental legalism. Look at the text again with me. It says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. Remember, the Colossian false teachers had been invading the church with a man-made philosophy that was a combination of pagan worship and Jewish Old Testament laws uh, that was actually demonically influenced and we're telling people that you can't reach full maturity unless you follow these rigid rules. And here again, we see aspects of these rigid rules, which I'm calling judgmental legalism. Let no one pass judgment on you. Pass judgment on what? In question about food or drink or with regard to a festival or new moon or Sabbath. You can qualify or categorize the judgmental legalism, the rigid rules that these false teachers advocated in two categories. Rigid rules about diet, rigid rules about religious holidays. Diet, it says questions about food or drink. Now, we don't know exactly what the rules about the food or drink were that the false teachers were advocating. We do know that they are, as I said, a combination of Jewish rules and pagan worship. And we can try and pinpoint them down. Scholars have tried that. So what, what were the rigid rules they were saying about diet, food, and drink? Well, the Old Testament has laws about food. It specifically at times prohibits like shellfish and things like that for the Jewish believers. There's, there's rules about food, meat. There's not a lot of rules about drink though at least not for the general population of the Jewish people. There was one lifestyle choice that Israelite worshipers could voluntarily choose to participate in that did have regulations of food and drink. You might not 
know exactly what the Nazarite vow is, but you probably know the one guy who practiced it, John the Baptist. John the Baptist, uh, his decision to uh, not eat meat and he only ate like honey and locusts and was part of a voluntary oath that he took called the Nazarite vow where a Nazarite decided they wouldn't touch any dead thing. So obviously, like if you're going to eat meat, like you got to slaughter an animal, right? So they wouldn't eat meat. And the other part of that vow was that they wouldn't have uh, alcoholic beverages from grapes, so wine, right? They wouldn't eat meat. They wouldn't drink wine. So some scholars think that this could be what the false teachers were forcing. They were forcing them to do the Nazarite vow. Others believe that there are aspects of pagan worship because apparently in the cultural context, it was quite regular for pagan worship to require abstinence from meat. We don't know exactly what it is. We do know it's some weird combination. We do know that the requirement related to holidays is specifically from the Jewish old old law, the Jewish covenant. It says, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to festival, new moon, or Sabbath. You might not know what the festival or new moon is, but you probably, if you're familiar with the Bible, understand that Sabbath was one of the 10 commandments, right? The Sabbath and these new moons and festivals, these were weekly, regular religious observance and seasonal religious observances where they took a day apart from work to specifically worship God. So what's the problem with this? Why was Paul saying, don't let anyone pass judgment on you? Well, there's really three problems with it. The first is that it was kind of from God's word, but it was also kind of from pagan worship. So really, in doing it, they weren't actually worshiping God. They were worshiping false gods. The second problem with it is that even if it was just purely from God's word, like the days that they observed the religious holidays, even if it just was from God's word, they weren't doing it to please God. They were motivated to do it to please these thrones and rulers and authorities, these angels that apparently gave them the visions to do it. So the problem was they weren't even doing it to please God, but these demonic beings. And the third and most important problem is that in Christ, through the new covenant established by his blood, all of the righteous requirements of the Old Testament were fulfilled in Christ. So that means that the old covenant law no longer served as a basis by which they could judge one another. Because God wasn't judging them like that, in that way. Paul describes the relationship that the old covenant law, the Old Testament rules, the relationship that believers have to that is the same relationship that a shadow has to a body. I like walking, and I like to listen to audiobooks while I'm walking, and uh, imagine you and I were walking together and both listening to the same thing. We had our headphones in, and maybe we like walking at night, so the sun's going down, it's shining towards our backs, and we can see our shadows in front of us. With our headphones in, we might not be able to see or hear a runner coming up on the side of us. But with the sun of our, at our back, earphones in, if there's a runner coming up on the side of us, we may not hear the runner, but we'll probably see his shadow first. And the shadow is indication that a person is coming, so you should probably move to the side. 
In the same way, the Old Testament law was a shadow that indicated that the fulfillment of the law was coming, and the fulfillment is Christ Jesus. All of God's righteous requirements in the Old Covenant were fulfilled in Christ, and that means that the Old Covenant law was no longer a basis by which God judged them and should no longer be a basis by which believers judge each other. But that's exactly what the false teachers were doing. Like ignorant children who are distracted by the silhouette of a hand puppet on a wall, the Colossian false teachers were foolishly distracted by the shadow and ignored the substance, which is Christ. And like ravenous, ravenous wild animals who fought the pack to be alpha dog and win superiority, the false teachers were using the law to beat each other up and assert their superiority over their supposed inferior, less religious Christians, brothers, and sisters, baselessly judging each other in a way that God no longer judged them. We, just like the Colossians, must defy judgmental legalism. Defiantly, no. No, you will, I will not let you judge me that way because Christ is the substance of our faith. I won't let you judge me that way because Christ is the substance of my faith. That's only the shadow of my faith. So then, if Christ has fulfilled the old covenant law, a good question for Christians to ask is, how should we relate to the Old Testament now? Is it even worthwhile reading? A uh, beloved family member of mine uh, kindly gave us a piece of technology that I know I'm never going to use. A family member of mine kindly gave us a old Sony Handycam that recorded on cassette. <laughs> and they thought that we could make use of it. I took one look at it and was like, I don't even know how to use this. <laughs> I don't even know if they make that technology anymore. But if I even found, somehow found a cassette and somehow wanted to record on it, how would I even, I'd probably have to use, read the user manual, but, but this is outdated technology and I have a digital camera in my pockets. I'm not, no way I'm reading a user manual for this. That's the way some people look at the Old Testament. Oh, you know, we have Jesus, so I don't need that. There are some people who actually call themselves red-letter Christians. You might have heard of that before. You know, maybe your Bible has the words of Jesus written in red to signify that it's the words of Christ. Some people say, oh, I'm a red-letter Christian. The only really words that are important in the Bible are the words of Jesus. Well, if you really knew the red words of Jesus, you'd really know that a lot of those red words are straight from the Old Testament. The Old Testament is not some irrelevant information like a user manual for technology that's obsolete. So what is the function of the law? Well, look at Romans chapter 7, verse 6 on the screen. It says this. Romans chapter 7, verse 6 says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Pause for a sec. On that first slide, it says that the law aroused the, our sin. The point of the law is to identify our sin. Go to the next slide. Let's keep reading. 
But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. The old way of the written code, the law, identified our sin, but Jesus Christ atoned for our sin so that we could be forgiven. So the one thing that the law does is it does help me recognize that I am a sinner. It helps you recognize that you are a sinner. We have not been able to keep any of the 10 commandments that God has given to us. But Christ fulfilled the requirements of the law and by faith in him, his righteousness is credited to my account. So the law helps identify my sin, but also more than that, the law reveals the beauty of all of who Jesus Christ is. See, the law in the Old Testament is an unfolding narrative. Each protagonist is not merely about that character. Each hero in the Old Testament is a type of who Christ would ultimately be and that Christ would ultimately fulfill all of what the Old Testament required. Christ is the offspring of the woman in Genesis 3 that would crush the head of the serpent. Christ is the fulfillment of the promise of Abraham that all nations would be blessed. Christ is the true prophet that God promised would come like Moses after Moses who everyone must listen to. Christ is the bronze serpent that was lifted up in the wilderness that all who look on him might be healed. Christ is the lamb of God who wasn't offered multiple times once every year, but the lamb of God who's once offered once for the sins for once for all. Christ's body is the veil of the tabernacle that separated the presence of God from the people. And Christ's body was the veil that was torn so that all people might enter the presence of God. Christ is the king from the line of David who would have eternal dominion over all the earth. Christ is the fulfillment of the new covenant from the prophet Ezekiel, that God would take our stone hearts out of our chest, stone dead hearts, and give us a new flesh heart that can actually beat and live for God. And if you were really confused about a lot of what I just said there, you're missing out on such beauty of who Jesus Christ is in the Old Testament. It reveals the magnitude of all that Christ is. And the more we read the Old Testament, the more we see all that Christ is. But it's no longer the basis by which we judge one another. It's the shadow. Christ is the substance. And since Christ fulfilled the old covenant law, now we are the governing principle for our community is not the law, but it's grace. John 1.14 says, For the law came through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The governing principle for our community is no longer the law, it's grace. That means we have no basis to judge one another. We should care about each other's maturity in Christ. But how dare I, how dare we stand on this false religiosity and look down at people because they're not where I am? We must defy judgmental legalism because Christ is the substance of our faith. So when we know that, we'll learn to patiently show grace to one another. Because Christ is the substance of our faith, let's patiently show grace. We have no basis to think that we're better than one another. 
When we look through the lens of grace, we see ourselves and each other more clearly because we should be concerned about each other's walk and maturity. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't want people to move to the next step or the next level of maturity. It just means that if you're at the next level, you can't look down at other people for not being where you are. Patiently showing grace means that first, I'm going to be humble before God. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 says, What do you have that you did not receive? It's a good question for us to ask. Think about your walk with Christ. Think, think about your salvation. Think about your justification, your sanctification, your righteousness in Christ, your hope of eternal life. What do you have that you did not receive? Everything I have, I received. Everything you have, you received. Acts chapter 17 says, in him we live and move and have our being. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Patiently showing grace means that I'm going to be humble before God. Brother and sister in Christ, it's so good to see that you're praying to the extent that you are, that you're giving to the extent that you are, but just because other people aren't doesn't make you any better than them. Or just because I'm not where you are doesn't mean you're any better than me. Patiently showing grace means I'm humble before God. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Patiently showing grace means that I'm not going to push others to be where I'm not. So if we should care about each other's maturity and we want each other to get to the next level and we want each other to grow, what should we do? 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 14 is helpful. It says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So someone in your small group might be faint-hearted because week by week they confess again and again that they've fallen into the same sin. What do you do? What do you do? It's not going to be helpful for you to get upset with them. God, we prayed about this last week. It's not going to be helpful for you to be upset at them. If they're faint-hearted, they need encouragement. If they're idle, they need admonishment. If they're weak, they need your help. Galatians chapter 6 says, bear each other's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, which is the law of love. If we are burdened down by the weight of sin, why, aren't, why don't we be the, others, the, be the ones who help others carry that burden? We must defy judgmental legalism. It's not just from the outside. We can be subject to it as well. We must defy judgmental legalism because the, Christ is the substance of our faith. So let's patiently show grace. We have a wealth of riches that's in Christ Jesus. The gospel is a treasure, but judgmental legalism is a not-so-subtle way of saying, oh yeah, this treasure that we have, I earned it. And it's a not-so-subtle way of saying, oh, that treasure that you think you have, not as good as mine. Watch out for that attitude, because that's the next attitude that Paul says that we need to defy Look at chapter 2, verse 18. It says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels and going on detail about vision. This word disqualify is an interesting word. It means to strip away a prize. It's a rare word in the New Testament. It's actually used only once uh, in this instance in the New Testament. And it's a compound word. 
where the other word is used pretty frequently, the main verb uh, is used frequently, that means to give a prize, but it's a compounded word that's rare, that means strip away a prize. And Paul is saying, do not let anyone strip away the prize that you have in the gospel. And the way that these false teachers were threatening to strip away the prize was this, hypocritical spirituality. We must defy hypocritical spirituality that would lead people away from the humble treasure of the gospel and towards some showy expression of self-righteousness. Don't let anyone strip away your prize. This man on the screen is named Lance Armstrong. Maybe you know of him, maybe you don't. Lance Armstrong was a professional cyclist well-known for his fight against cancer, He was the guy who pioneered the Livestrong yellow bracelets. His success in the Tour de France road bike race, and he was most well-known recently for his immense collapse of his reputation and character. The Tour de France is a road cycling competition that happens every summer throughout the entire country of France. Maybe you like biking, and uh, you got your bike out recently, and you're so happy, and it's like, "Mm, I did 5K. Tour de France, 3,500K. 3,500 kilometers of racing over 21 days. In the mid-90s, having already entered the race twice, Lance Armstrong was diagnosed with three types of cancer. Doctors told him that he only had about 20 to 50% chance of survival. But not only did he recover, he re-entered professional cycling, re-entered the Tour de France, and won this 3,500-kilometer race an unprecedented seven times. Throughout his success, he was repeatedly accused of using illegal performance-enhancing drugs. But when he was accused, he adamantly denied those claims and would even sue people who would say that he was cheating. But in 2012, he was finally exposed as a fraud in a way that he could not dispute any longer. He finally admitted he was wrong, finally admitted He cheated, and the organization that governs the Tour de France stripped away all seven of his titles and an Olympic medal that he won was taken away, too. Now, he deserved to get his prizes stripped away because the guy cheated. There's a prize that we have in the gospel that's incomparable to anything that we could get from any race that we'd run in this earth. The Apostle Paul was looking towards the prize that Christ had won for him in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He said, I've run the race. I have, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is a crown of righteousness laid up for me and for all those who have loved his appearing. Church, there is a prize of eternal life waiting for you that Christ has won for you by his blood and by his grace. But... Paul was concerned for the Colossians because if they listened to these false teachers, they would have departed from the true gospel and their prize would have been stripped away as if they were disqualified from a race for cheating and taken away the valuable prize that they won. And Paul said, no, don't let them do that to you. We must defy hypocritical spirituality. So what's the nature of their hypocritical spirituality that they needed to defy? Well, let's look at the text again. We'll see the elements of this. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting, three things, on asceticism and worship of angels, going in on detail about visions and puffed up 
without reason by a sensuous mind. Asceticism, worship of angel visions. What do they mean by that? It's a manufactured form of spirituality that thinks that if they reach this ecstatic state, they can enter into visions and learn a secret knowledge from angels to be able to then and only then truly reach full maturity. Asceticism is really uh, the philosophical word that talks about what we already discussed, how they were using these rigid rules of pagan and Jewish worship. And they were extreme. Asceticism is like intentionally afflicting your body. In verse 23, it says, these have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Jesus talked about religious people like this, right? In Matthew chapter six, he talked about a religious people. He said, when you fast, don't do what the Pharisees do. Do you remember this? They look gloomy. They make themselves look gloomy. They put on sackcloth and ashes and they walk around looking so pitiful. Oh, I'm so pain. I'm fasting. Does anyone see how humble I am? Right? That's essentially what the, this showy, self-righteous, false humility, asceticism. And they actually believed that if they afflicted their bodies in this way, it could somehow elevate their consciousness to be able to reach some kind of angelic vision. And only could they reach this vision if they afflicted their body in this way. And when they entered these visions, evidently they were actually like worshiping the angels the demons who were giving them these visions. It was manufactured spirituality. Making themselves look so good because of what they do, but it wasn't really humble because they were puffed up without reason. They went on, look at, look at the secret knowledge that I've gained. You can gain it too if you do the same thing. The problem is that it was a supposed knowledge that was apart from Christ puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head. They believed that these behaviors were a gateway into spiritual visions by which they could truly reach full maturity, but in the end, it was all hypocritical arrogance, manufactured spirituality. This is the point. The simple truth of the gospel and the knowledge of our identity in him is enough for us to reach full maturity. Watch out for manufactured spirituality that says that you must reach this state or enter this frame of mind and then you can really be close to God. We must defy hypocritical spirituality because the source of our growth is Christ. Look at the text again. Not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Christ is the source of our growth. That's what it means when Christ is the head. As the brain sustains the function of the body and orders the body for healthy living, so when we are connected to Christ and the message of his gospel and doing that with other Christians, we will be knit together and grow with the growth that is from God. We don't need some manufactured ecstatic experiences. We need the simplicity of being connected to Christ. Think back to your middle school science class for a minute. What was that process called that plants did so that they could like have cell development and growth? It's got five syllables, you remember? 
Photosynthesis, that's right. What are the qualities, what are the things you need for photosynthesis to happen? You need carbon dioxide, you need sunlight, you need water, right? Not that complicated, three simple things for growth. Carbon dioxide, sunlight, water. There's not a lot that you need for your growth of Christ. Being connected to the head means that we are meditating on the word of God, seeking the Lord in prayer, and gathering together in fellowship with other Christians who do the same. We don't need to manufacture some kind of spiritual experience to get closer to God. So what are the ways, are there ways that this happens in Christianity today? I think there are. But not quite like Paul's age. Because in Paul's age, they were, the Colossian church was influenced by Jewish rules, pagan worship. Not a lot of that so much going on today. The results in Paul's age were that they, they were trying to manufacture this false sense of humility and, and make themselves look gloomy and mortify themselves. But that, I don't really see that attitude a lot today. Actually, I see the other end of the spectrum. I see Christianity that's not trying to like, woe is me, false humility. I see a lot of, wow, I'm great, false hype. There's a lot of Christianity that's organized today that tries to manufacture a spiritual experience that does not produce growth and misses the gospel. Two things that I observe that are very prominent. Most viewed videos on YouTube, most liked videos on Instagram, most downloaded podcasts. Watch out for Christianity that manufactures over-emphatic need of certain spiritual gifts. I remember a gentleman who came to our church many years ago, and when he went through a membership process, we asked him about his prior church experience, and he told us that in prior church experience, he was told by one person from a certain denomination, go in this room, do not come out until you're speaking in tongues. I've told you guys before that I went to a university in Virginia and through some events that happened in the 90s in churches in Toronto, Toronto got an international reputation for what Christianity is like here. And that's for over-emphatic, manufactured, charismatic experiences. In the 90s, there was this movement happening in Toronto that people called the Toronto Blessing where apparently... You could get this closer experience with God if you were like touched by anointed man. And then the result of apparently the work of the Holy Spirit was that when you were touched by this anointed person, maybe you'd be healed. But what you'd see is people falling back over and convulsing, manufacturing this experience saying that they're closer to God as a result of that. Apparently, the uh, evidence of the Holy Spirit looks like seizures. That's not true. The Holy Spirit gives gifts according to his sovereign will. We cannot manufacture it by ourselves. He gives gifts, and no one is greater than the other, but so many churches that overemphasize certain spiritual gifts really what they're training people to do is manufacture false expressions of those gifts because the Holy Spirit decides who gets gifts, not us. 
by manufacturing these experiences or saying that you need to have this experience, people do manufacture it and they believe that if I don't have this, I'm not close to God. It's not the way that the Holy Spirit works in the church. Watch out for these false manufactured expressions of the Holy Spirit. Watch out also for false hype through heavy emotion in the church. A lot of what church and Christianity is organized today is around high-energy, human-centered experiences. So the songs we sing in worship become more like a concert that focus on positive emotions rather than about proclaiming the excellency of God. Preaching becomes more of a performance that focuses on self-help and personal success rather than serving in God's supremacy. And as a result, these churches that really, you go into it and it feels like if I'm not rowdy every week, and if I'm not happy and clapping and amening, and if I'm actually going through the valley of the shadow of death and feel like I'm dragging myself through a bog, I just have to just be rowdy and just be happy because that's just what the culture, like everyone's happy. It's based in emotion and hype rather than gospel truth. And because every service, every song, every message is another attempt at this type of hype, it's really like they're trying to produce Christian maturity through childbirth. Every service, every song, every message is like another attempt at childbirth, but because the services are conceived in hype and emotion rather than gospel truth, every baby born is stillborn. Spiritually infertile. Growth isn't a result of false humility. Growth isn't propelled through hype. Real growth comes through God when we are simply connected to Christ, who is the head. We must defy hypocritical spirituality because Christ is the source of our growth. So church, that means we must eagerly and humbly abide in him daily. Last week, or a few weeks ago, I talked about the caution that I had for the church about new age meditation. And I really believe that one of the reasons that Christians are so drawn to mindfulness meditation practices is because they just don't know how to meditate on the word of God. Do you know what Psalm chapter 1 says when we meditate on God's word? Not when we try and empty our mind, but when we try and fill it. Psalm chapter 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. You know what that teaches me? That morning devotions aren't enough. An hour in the morning isn't enough. I need to meditate on God's word day and night. And what happens when we meditate on it day and night, he is like a tree planted by streams of water who bears its fruit in season, like growth, whose leaf does not wither, true prosperity, even in the dry season I'm growing, and all that he does, he prospers. So if you want to grow, Christian, you got to abide in Christ. 
And Jesus said in John 15 that abiding him is letting his word dwell in us and letting his words prompt our prayers. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Ask whatever you wish. When? When his words abide in you. By this my Father is glorified by you, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. You see, church, we need, if we're going to grow, we need to defiantly say no to false teaching, but that's not enough. We need to say courageously, eagerly, humbly say yes to abiding in Christ. We're not going to grow without it. And when we're not abiding in Christ, and we see super religious people who stand on their self-righteousness and you want to be like them, or you see super hype preachers or ecstatic spiritual experiences when you're not rooted and grounded in Christ, these things can be really attractive. They can. That's why they're so popular. They can. But they're not functional. It's dressing up the gospel in a way that's attractive, but in a way that's not functional. You may have loved that suit that you got when you were a groomsman for your buddy's wedding. Royal blue, leather brown buttons, suede shoes. You probably looked really good. But it's probably not going to be very functional when you have to go and mow your lawn the next day. You may have loved the dress that you wore when you went to prom. But you probably didn't wear it when you went to second period English class the next day legalistic self-righteousness, attractive, ecstatic experiences can look good, but they're dressed up and they're not functional for true spiritual growth. It's not enough just to say yes, or excuse me, no to defying false teaching. We need to say yes to abiding in Christ. And when we say yes to abiding in Christ, not just every morning, but day and night, we will grow with a growth that is from God because we'll be connected to the head. We'll grow in grace. And together, we won't look down at each other or compare each other and look up at others and think, I can't be like them or they can't be like me. We'll look at each other with grace. And, and when we say yes to grace and when we say yes to being connected to Christ, we will say yes to the simple, to the routine to the discipline, but we'll be saying yes to growth. We can grow in grace together as we are connected to Christ, who is our head. So we're going to sing a simple down-temple song that expresses the beauty of what it means to be connected to Christ, who is the head. The beauty of a relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and the grace that we have in him. So would you pray, or stand with me now as we pray together and sing. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the grace of Christ Jesus that has allowed us to overcome sin. Thank you for the grace of Christ Jesus that has clothed us in righteousness. Thank you for the grace of Christ Jesus that has given us the simple means of the word of God in prayer and by which we can be connected to you and grow. Oh, help us, Lord God. Help us to have the courage to discern and defy false teaching and also to have the eager humility to say yes to abiding in you.
And God, would you cause our church to grow? Would you cause me to grow, Lord God? Thank you that you prune me. Thank you that you cut off those things that keep me from walking in you. Lord, help me to be able to say yes to you every day. Help our church to say yes to you every day, to be like that tree planted by streams of water, to grow in season, to, to grow out of season, to prosper in all we do, not for our sake, but for your glory. Thank you that in Christ we have all that we need. We praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.